millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Showdown in the Doyle over so-called convoluted government legislation to open up hospitality. As Sonish Dalia Varadkar says, this imperfect plan is the best option. Let's not lose sight of what we're doing here. This legislation is enabling indoor hospitality to reopen for customers for the first time this year. And we're one of the last countries in Europe to do so, if not the last. And Enfit urges caution, especially for unvaccinated population, including children, as daily case numbers for COVID reach 783. For now, uh, to, to parents of young children, it's safer not to bring your children into uh, indoor dining and other facilities, even though these kinds of things might be possible. I mean, that would be the responsible public health uh, advice. On our first panel tonight, we're joined by Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers and via Skype by Dr Ilona Duffy, GP and Medical Director of North East Dock. Later in the programme, the British government announces plans to end all prosecutions for killings during the Troubles. We'll have the latest as victims, families and Irish government opposes the move. And are you forking out over 30% of your take-home pay on rent? And as the fallout over the online vitriol faced by England footballers continues, what are we doing to properly tackle online abuse? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. So our first guest in studio is Fianna Fáil Centre Lisa Chambers. We're joined via Skype by Dr Lona Duffy, who is the GP and Medical Director of North East Dock. Lona, we've seen some fairly stark warnings from ENFA tonight for unvaccinated people in the population. And we've also learnt case numbers are at their highest since late February. 783 new confirmed cases today. What do you make of that? Well, none of this is a surprise. Uh, we know that the Delta variant is now the predominant um, COVID infection here in the country, and therefore we're following the UK, and we can see from them how easily it spreads, and and that's reflected in the numbers. I suppose Neffet have warned us that this is what they saw, and the predictions were that the numbers were going to rise, and unfortunately the predictions are that they're going to continue to rise dramatically with, uh, with a doubling of cases perhaps every week. That's already happening where we are in our locality, and that in a one-week period we've seen a doubling of cases and here on the ground having gone almost two months with no positive cases we now have cases every day. But how sick are people getting? Are you having to send as many people for hospital care as might have been the case in previous waves of the epidemic or the pandemic? So far, we've had to refer nobody to hospital, but it's early days. We would hope we won't be seeing the same number of people being referred to hospital 
because we now have all of the at-risk people, well, not quite all, but hopefully most of them vaccinated, meaning the older members of our community, all those over 70 being vaccinated by their GPs and those with medical illnesses vaccinated through GP services and through the hospital services. And as we're aware, um, quite a high percentage of our adults, I think 40% are fully vaccinated at this stage, which is wonderful. So that is good. But as the numbers rise, we definitely will see some people who, despite vaccination or because they're not vaccinated, will remain at risk and may end up in hospital. And what we've also got to remember is as the numbers rise and as the positive rates go up, what tends to happen is services in the hospitals and in the community close down. And um, we'll see what happened before where hospital appointments are deferred and um, tests in hospital investigations, surgery for patients. And that all impacts in other healthcare needs other than the COVID. Alona, we all got used to being told about the various symptoms that we had to look out for in case we did have COVID. Are those symptoms now changing? Could it be that other things are now predominant? Well, the picture we seem to be seeing is that it is more upper respiratory type symptoms, which again creates some difficulty at this time of the year, because this is a time when many patients will get similar symptoms, snuffly nose, congested feeling, pain in their sinus bones, perhaps post-nasal drip and a resultant cough. So many of them will be thinking, well, this is hay fever, so I don't have to do anything about it. And they're the type of calls we're getting from people, as many of them actually ringing, asking for their usual nasal spray or their antihistamines. And we're kind of saying to them, actually, the first thing we need to do is get a COVID test done on you. And some people are being really surprised when they come back with a positive test. They're saying, I actually don't feel too bad. And, and but I just had the snuffles. I just had what I thought was a simple cold. So I suppose the advice is if you've any respiratory symptoms, and that just doesn't mean simply a cough. That means if you're sneezing, if you're snuffly, if you have that post-nasal drip, if you have the headache, the sinus pain, contact your GP, arrange for a test to be done or self-refer yourself if you're in an area that has a walk-in centre. Now, we've also heard tonight from the Chief Medical Officer, Tony Holohan, who is concerned about the reopening of indoor dining and particularly the way that many parents might want to bring children with them if they are going to a pub or restaurant. Uh, what would you think in relation to his concerns there? Well, we have to remember that our Chief Medical Officer is first and foremost a doctor, so his main aim is to offer advice that keeps people safe. So clearly, if people are unvaccinated and going into an area where they're going to be meeting other groups of people, the risk is that they will become infected with COVID. And this group are obviously going to be unvaccinated. So he is advising parents that if you want to stop your child becoming infected with COVID, then you have to keep them home and you have to keep them in groups that are maybe safer in an outdoor setting. That's difficult because many people want to go out, their parents are vaccinated, they're kind of saying, well, we'll be in a small group and together. But I think what tends to happen is when we go out, we sometimes let our guard down and we see a friend, we see people, people come over to our table to have the chat. So we don't remain in that little bubble that might keep us safe. We're mixing and mingling that bit more and therefore putting ourselves and especially those who are unvaccinated at risk. And I suppose another point is that just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you can't become infected with COVID and doesn't mean you can't pass it on to others. And I want to stay with us. I want to turn to Lisa Chambers here in studio. The government is bowing, I suppose, to a lot of pressure from the public and from publicans and restaurateurs that for business reasons, let things open up and to give people some enjoyment. But is that a massive risk to be taking? Is it a mistake to be making on a day when we have 783 new cases and the numbers are only expected to go up? I don't, I don't believe it's a massive risk. Of course there's risk. 
Um, there's risk in everything we do in relation to COVID. I think the government are doing their job. Uh, they're taking on board the, the medical advice, but they're also balancing that with all of the other things that they need to protect. Jobs, um, and, and that is, there's a lot of jobs in hospitality, people's mental health, their well-being, and, and of course they have to listen to the public. Um, that's who they represent, that's who they're there to govern, but they're there because of the consent of the people. So I think, you know, government have a very difficult job to do. They're trying to balance reopening with protecting public health, um, but they're doing that in conjunction with the vaccination programme, which has been rolled out very successfully. Over two million citizens are now vaccinated. Um, that's increasing every day of the week uh, and we can see the impact that that's having on hospitalizations so it's not just about uh, numbers of infections we have to look as well uh, I think primarily at hospitalizations how many people are ending up in ICU and in hospital and that's really what they're keeping a close eye on so you know it is, it's a very difficult task to do um, but we saw when hospitality was delayed reopening uh, nearly two weeks ago you know the outcry from people in those industries because their livelihoods their businesses some of them will never open again and that's really important as well, and that has to be considered. OK, Lona, what do you make of that economic and societal argument? I think there are multiple reasons for starting the reopening and that what we've got to do is this in a paced approach. So if we hold off too long, we may end up risk opening um, hospitality and other and other areas where people will be gathering at the same time as we're reopening our schools and we might see too high a surge. So I think we kind of have to open the dam a little, acknowledge that we're going to see a rise in cases, watch that, see if it results in hospitalizations and ICU admissions and in deaths. And if we can be sure that we can continue with our successful vaccination program, I think that's how we'll continue doing it. It will be bit by bit. Perhaps plans may change and things have to be deferred for a couple of weeks uh, after an initial plan to open things. But I think if we follow the guide of, of NEFIT, who are doing an excellent job, it has to be said all along, they have predicted waves, they've given us the advice, they've told us how we can prevent them. And to date, we have managed to do a really good job on that. We're also joined now in studio by independent TD Michael McNamara, who has come from the Oireachtas, from the Doyle, where he has just voted, where I believe all but one of the opposition voted against the government's proposals. Why did you vote against? I, I voted against them simply because they're discriminatory. They're something that we were assured would never come to pass. Uh, again, we're out of kilter with the rest of Europe as we were throughout last summer. I believe the fact that Ireland was so restricted last summer was one of the... Uh, the, um, was one of the measures that impacted upon the, the Christmas reopening. I don't think there'd be the same desire to, you know, have parties at Christmas as there was had we been like the rest of Europe and allowed people a degree of, of latitude during the summer. But can, I mean, we our hospitals give, are can we afford to give people latitude when we're now up to 783 cases in a day? Well, first of all, there isn't the same link between cases and hospitalisations as there were. But secondly, even if there isn't, I mean, this is the Delta variant. I mean, I could be wrong and I defer to medical expertise, but I expect there will be another variant. Um, it will, by definition, be more contagious than this one if it, if it replaces this one, because that's why one variant replaces another. So is this an endless cycle that we're going to go through indefinitely? Because I don't we think we can... To, maybe we're supposed to wait until the vaccinations are done and the vaccination programme still needs another six to eight weeks. Yes, but even at that, I mean, we are told by Public Health England that vaccinations reduce the spread of the virus, but they don't stop it. So the virus is still going to spread and vaccinated people are still going to become ill. So if we're going to take the approach that we've taken up to now that we can somehow uh, prevent the spread of a respiratory virus, which is, I think, what we have 
rather optimistically tried to do up to now. In my view, unfortunately, we can't. We're going to have to learn to live with it. And these type of restrictions on society, on individuals, on civil liberties, um, and on our economy. Explain more this discrimination, because other countries are doing this. Other countries are putting in place measures whereby the vaccinated enjoy certain privileges and the unvaccinated have to wait. Very few. France is doing this. But France is also saying that if you can produce an antigen test, which is cheap, easy and available in uh, all over the place, that they will accept that to allow people to enter. We, of course, because Neffet, for whatever reasons best known to themselves, uh, have taken a set on antigen testing. We're not uh, producing, we're not even allowing people who have a, a PCR test to go into bars, much less an antigen test. So, I mean, yes, France are doing that, but they are also acknowledging that we need to allow people to live their lives to the greatest extent possible. Neffet has never done that from the start. Uh, Neffet is an advisory body, but they are being extremely cautious, as is their want. But it's for the government to strike a balance. When it so comes to the pubs and restaurants, and the enforcement. Are we going to have a sort of an Irish solution to this global problem in that we'll have all of these rules in place, but effectively we'll end up turning a blind eye to them. They won't be enforced. Uh, I, I think that's what will happen in, in many pubs. Not all, but many pubs. I mean, I think there are a lot of pubs around the country, anecdotally from talking to colleagues in the, the Dáil, it would seem that there are pubs around the country serving indoors now, but there are pubs who simply don't have the... Sorry, should they be? I mean, should people report them to the authorities <coughs> if they're aware of pubs serving indoors ahead of the 19th of July? Um, look, if people want to report something, they're free to do it. I wouldn't be reporting them to the authorities. I just think live and let live because nobody's being dragged into those bars. Nobody's being forced to go to them. And at the end of the day, you know, you don't... Um, people have to be able to make personal choices. You go, uh, you don't go to a bar if you don't want to go to a bar. You don't go to a restaurant if you don't want to go to one. Elise, are you hearing that before we even get to the issue of enforcement, that there's already in rural Ireland people drinking... Well, and I suspect pubs. in urban Ireland as well. Uh, I'm not sorry. I'm a, I'm a little bit stunned to hear a member of the Lair and advocate that somebody, would not, that somebody would not obey the law. Um, sorry, we I may or may not agree no, with Lisa, it. I didn't but as a society, I, I didn't advocate uh, you, you said live and let obey. live. Uh, and as a society, we have rules and regulations in place, whether we agree with them or don't agree with them. These are laws passed. In, in a democracy through our parliament um, with the consent of the majority of elected representatives that represent the people of Ireland. So I don't think any public representative should ever advocate that anybody would break the law. That's the first point I'll make. Secondly, uh, I'm not aware actually that pubs are serving inside, uh, certainly not, nothing in my community that I'm aware of. Um, and, and, I, and I appreciate it's been a difficult point for hospitality, but in, by voting against the legislation tonight, you are voting to not reopen hospitality nonsense, at all. Nonsense, and that's what, that's what was on the table. So it seems as though, unfortunately, it's opposition for the sake of opposition. No, the legislation no. that went through the House tonight was brought to the House in conjunction with uh, consultation with the hospitality industry, the Restaurants Association of Ireland, the Vintners Association, who engaged extensively and actually spoke very positively about that engagement. First um, so to vote against it on, and to rhyme off lots of uh, kind of random reasons around civil liberties and uh, discrimination and to not Those back... Those are pretty them, important not, issues. Are, Why did you say back, it was back nonsense, them up, Michael? Then. Well, first of all, I didn't advocate people breaking the law. You asked me, would I advocate people reporting them? I said they can report them if they want to. I said, but I think people should be able to live in it. you live. wouldn't do it yourself. Because, no, because at some point people have to go back to making decisions for themselves what risk is appropriate to them. And, you know, uh, you know generally... Uh, you, 
you go to a bar if you feel comfortable in it. If you don't feel comfortable in the bar, you don't go to the bar. And no, people aren't being press ganged into them. I certainly didn't advocate that people break the law, and I'd rather Lisa didn't uh, misrepresent what I said intentionally. I heard what you said. The that's second, why, that's the I, I, and I, I'm fairly certain what I said too. The second point that she made, which is she said that this is a democratically elected law. Democracy involves a, a deliberation, a consideration of the law. Uh, you hear the other side, even if you don't necessarily agree with them. You, you discuss amendments. The government have brought in five pillar pieces of legislation since Michal Martin became Taoiseach. And on each and every occasion, they have rammed it through without even taking amendments, without even listening to amendments. Now that's, democracy is not a tyranny of the majority. Democracy is about deliberation, it's about discussion, and it's about hearing the other side so that people feel represented. The way this government does it is to disregard the voices of the opposition and the people they represent. That is not sustainable in the longer term because people feel that they're not represented by the lawmaking body. And perhaps regard for the law dissipates as a result. And the third point, that Lisa made with which I would fundamentally disagree is that this is a choice between leaving the bars closed or not. Bars are bars, um, indoor dining was available throughout last summer when there were no vaccinations. Now we're suddenly told that we have to ask owners of restaurants to discriminate and to ask people their uh, vaccination status in order to serve them when they didn't have to do that last summer. That to me indicates that we're going backwards, not forwards, and that we're going to have more and more and more restrictions until people are able to decide for themselves what risk they want to take. Lisa, more restrictions ran <coughs> through by a government which doesn't even want to have debate on the legislation involved. What's your response to that? Well, well given that Michael just came from Dáil Éireann, where the, the legislation an was, hour and a half. was debated... An hour and a half, and Lisa, that's was, a farce. Was, did, did pass through all stages of the legislative In process, an hour and a half. As did all of the bills. In I, an hour and a half. I did let you speak, but if you if you intend on just interrupting somebody because they disagree with you, it's probably not a great way to debate. Do you think an hour and a half is a... Do you think an hour and a half is a sufficient time in which to debate the important Is this the type of debate that you want where you interrupt other people when they're making a point that you don't agree with? Every piece of legislation legislation that has passed through has gone through all stages of the legislative process, as is the norm. That has not changed. Some bills were, there was a degree of urgency because of the emergency situation and the extraordinary circumstances that we are operating in. The legislation tonight was a roadmap and a way to reopen indoor hospitality. My view is that if you voted against it, you were, you were removing that possibility and that roadmap. Thankfully, the vast majority of all members of Dáil and vote for that legislation and I anticipate the same will happen in Shannon there and when the bill passes the, the vast end of the majority, week. did you the say? Vast majority. The vast majority. The vast majority. It got through by, I think, was it six votes or something and it was less the second time because... Anyway. OK, I want to go back to majority. Dr Elona Duffy. Elona, are you worried that perhaps some of the spread of the virus here in the Republic has happened because of cross-border travel? People from the south going over to eat and drink in the north and that that now will actually continue the other direction as well once we open up? Uh, we've already heard stories in Donegal, which has some of the areas with the highest rates of COVID infection at the moment. And definitely that's felt to be as a result of seepage of infection over and back across the border. This has happened repeatedly since March of, of 2020, when COVID first came, when the higher rates were in Northern Ireland. And definitely it's not necessarily just because people are going over to eat and drink. I actually don't think it's that. I think people are going because they're going shopping. They're going to meet family. They're going to work. And that's been a problem throughout COVID and probably the problem isn't so much the travel but the fact that we still don't have joined up planning and thinking with regards to our public health strategies with regards to how we manage COVID and what restrictions we have in place and until we have that we will always have that flow from one side to the other of the border. Just one other thing with you Alona, have you sorted out the issue with uh, doctors being required to provide patients uh, with certificates to prove that they've overcome COVID? 
We believe we have. Um, it still seems to some little bit of a debate about it, but I believe Thornish yesterday clarified that GPs will not be requested to do this, which is a relief because um, we're already busy enough. There's absolutely no way we can take on this as a workload. But obviously, if we're going to have these kind of certs and have QR codes, we have to be sure that they work. We have to be sure that they can't be forged, they can't be changed. And the only way to do that is to provide them from a central position, and that is the HSE, who have all of the details and everybody who's been vaccinated and everybody who's had an infection. Okay. Because it must be remembered that we don't have all of that detail because of the cyber attack. We don't have a lot of the positive results. We wouldn't be even able to provide it for our patients. Thank you very much for being with us, Dr. Lona Duffy. Uh, we're going to change topic now because earlier today, the Northern Ireland Secretary, Brandon Lewis, confirmed that the British government will introduce an end to prosecutions for all killings that took place during the Troubles. Families of victims and indeed the Irish government have strongly opposed the move. We're joined now by the crime correspondent and columnist with the Belfast Telegraph, Alison Morris. What has prompted this move by the British government? This has been expected for some time now. The, the British government have been briefing probably for about the last six months, saying that they preferred a, a statute of limitations and end the prosecutions. And it's driven by promises that Boris Johnson made when he was making a bid for leadership of the Tory party. He made commitments to backbench MPs and he made commitments to the veterans lobby that he would end all investigations into troubles killings. To do that, and the British government clearly took legal advice that is not legal to give an amnesty <clears throat> to one section of the, the, the people who participated in our conflict. So now they're saying that there's going to be a statute of limitations which will apply across the board. So British soldiers, former members of the RUC, loyalist paramilitaries, Republican paramilitaries, um, and it is in fact, and, and victims groups have said, a, a de facto amnesty. Um, the, the paper that was that was released today that gives some more sort of detail on what the British government are planning to do also surprisingly, and this was something that hadn't been previously briefed, said that they will also be bringing an end to civil cases, to legacy inquests, of which there are currently 30, waiting in the pipeline on a, a date for those to be heard. Um, and poli the police ombudsman is expected to have all legacy cases taken out of her office. And all of that will go into one central pot, a sort of truth recovery type process. And all that victims then will receive is some sort of file if they ask for it file of evidence which will give anything that is contained in the public domain. They're hoping that they'll get input from Republican and Loyalist paramilitaries and the British government has said they will give over disclosure and secret files and that is basically Alison, what they're um, proposing as a, a replacement for Alison, any further investigation. Just say victims' families are very upset, say this is very immoral and they feel that they won't get the answers they need. But is this not, in some respects, a regularisation of what was really happening? That there had been very little effort made in recent years to actually bring anyone to justice for their many crimes during uh, the Troubles. And, and that's it. The system we have at the minute isn't working. Nobody is claiming that what's in place now is ideal. It clearly doesn't work. There have been a handful of convictions, but not very many. Um, and then earlier this month, two of the cases that were going through the courts, the, the Bloody Sunday case of Soldier F, and the case of Soldier B, who had been charged with killing 15-year-old um, Daniel Haggerty, they collapsed because the PPS said that evidence collected at the time was no longer admissible. So you can see the difficulties in trying to pursue those prosecutions. I think that mainly what victims' families are angry at was the lack of um, any kind of consultation. The British government have unilaterally decided this. They're now going to hold talks with the Irish government and with the five political parties 
but they're holding those talks after they've made this decision, not before they've made it. Okay. Um, and also, I think it's taken that hope away. You know, people, there are some cases where people think, well, there may well be new evidence in my case, you may well get a prosecution. Um, and I suppose it's just taken away that hope. And also, it's singling us out in, in the north of Ireland from the rest of these islands. And in fact, you know, the rest of the world, if you would expect if someone belonging to you was murdered and there was evidence that may lead to a conviction for that, that it would be investigated. And what we're being told is now, no, all of these investigations are coming to an end. Boris Johnson, I think, quite crassly lose the, this, the term, a line in the sand. We can put a line well, in the line, sand. Lines in the sand tend to get swept away. Thank you very much, Alison Morris, <laughs> and Morris for joining us. Very briefly, Lisa, uh, the government says this is not a done deal. Simon Coveney said that, but realistically, mm -hmm. what can the government do? Look, it's, it's challenging. Um, you know, the Stormont House Agreement provides a mechanism for dealing with legacy issues. Um, the government will consider these proposals. They will look at them. Uh, on an initial reading, they will not be acceptable. There is no desire for an amnesty in Northern Ireland by the political parties or the citizens. The government in the UK know this, so we'll have to, to deal with those issues. OK, we have to leave it there for the moment. Lisa Chambers and Michael McNamara are staying with us. And after the break, are you forking out over 30% of your take-home pay on rent? And breaking reports tonight that our corporate tax rate of 12.5% is to be abandoned. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Well, Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers and Independent TD Michael McNamara have stayed with us. Today, a report by the Residential Tenancies Board revealed the state of the rental sector here. Half of Ireland's tenants spent more than 30% of their take-home pay on rent. What do you make of that, Michael? It's high. It's very high. And I mean, it's getting higher, particularly in rural Ireland. I mean, I think the rents have increased by about 10% on average outside of Dublin, including in Clare. Um, we do need to bring a lot more rental accommodation online, even not, and notwithstanding that, a lot of landlords want to leave the sector. So, I mean, there's a lot of derelict buildings, uh, uh, in particular over shops, etc., on the main streets of most towns and villages right across Ireland. Once you, once you get outside, are they County easily Dublin. restored? No, I don't think they're easily restored. Um, and um, my namesake, who's no relation of mine whatsoever, uh, Shelley McNamara of Grafton Architects, an international award-winning. Uh, architect has called for a project to be put in place to ensure that they can be because you know we need to get people into accommodation we also need to breathe life back into our uh, towns and villages so it's not going to be easy but unless we start doing something we're not going to achieve what we need to do which is provide homes for families and provide life back in our towns and villages because lisa i suspect a lot of people would like that when you see those figures are bad enough but when you dig into dublin 12 percent renters are paying more than half of their take-home pay 
in rent. They're paying way more than they would be paying if they were paying off a mortgage. Yeah, look, it's huge. And, you know, I, I know the report says I think one in five are, are renting because they can't get a mortgage. So that's a big problem. Um, and, you know, even even 30% of your income is a huge amount to spend on your rent. There isn't a whole lot left besides if you're trying to pay for childcare and, and just living and, and paying your bills as well. So, look, we do need to get more stock in the system of that, there is no doubt. And, you know, we, we've seen the affordable housing bill published recently and, sorry, passed through both houses recently, which will, apply, which will allow for local authorities to build affordable homes on state lands. So that will hopefully increase supply. And uh, we'll have a shared equity scheme as well, which will help people to buy their first home. That, that one in five people that can't get a mortgage will hopefully be able to get into that scheme. So that will hopefully free up some rental properties. So all of these different initiatives that are just coming through from government now through Dara O'Brien's office, Minister for Housing, um, we would hope to see that impact on the rental system. Do you support that? Because I know that in the wake of the abysmal performance by Fianna Fáil in the Dublin-based salt by-election, your party colleague Jim O'Callaghan said that Fianna Fáil didn't get the housing crisis. Uh, well, the housing crisis has been there for a number of years now and we've got the ministry now just about a year and in that time we've published two significant pieces of legislation that will deal directly with housing supply and you know the, the, the he difficulty He doesn't think you're doing well enough Look I've great time for Jim I think he's an excellent TD and that's his own position and I, I think we have to give it a little bit of time we've got a minister that's been there for just a year this has been an issue that's been there for over a decade he is a uh, Minister O'Brien is going to be publishing his housing for all document I think in the next three days um, so there is a lot of stuff happening in that space but it does take time and well, we have to get stuff built What do you reckon built. young people will be making this? Do you think can they have any any confidence in the older generations actually solving a housing crisis that they've created? Um, well, the older generations, if, I mean, Daryl Bryan isn't particularly old in fairness, but um, we're, the same old thinking isn't going to start it unless we start actually getting people back into houses as fast as possible. And there are a number of, of as I say, derelict buildings and they can be brought back, not easily, but faster, but it is going to involve legislation and it's going to have to involve a, a coordinated plan it to do it. It money, doesn't it? Where's the money going to come from to do all this? It is going to need money and I mean, that's going to be, you know, the, the news that you announced. I, I wasn't aware of it coming here tonight. But this is We're, a report Daniel McConnell in the Irish Examiner this evening saying that the word coming out of Cabinet is, is that there's a realisation because of international pressure in the OECD mm. that we're going to have to give up our 12.5% corporation tax rate. Yeah, I mean, for the past number of years, corporate tax has been a bit of a, it, it's, it's, it's been very successful, but it's it's had its day for the past number of years. It's been a bit of a windfall tax. And unfortunately, the government, this government, and indeed the previous one, which relied upon Fianna Fáil for support, uh, didn't use that windfall to develop a infrastructure that we could use to, to attract employment. But where's the money going to come from now? Because we also have the summary economic statement been released, surprisingly, this evening, looking at deficits of 20 billion per annum. I mean, how long is that sustainable for? And what does that do then to our ability to build all these houses and apartments that we want. Well, it's it's not, which is why I fundamentally opposed the idea of shutting down so many sectors of our economy and borrowing money to compensate them. I think if we were going to be borrowing money, we should have been borrowing money to invest in housing and invest in our infrastructure so that we had something to show for the borrowed money, so that we had something upon which we could build the growth of our economy. I mean, Leo Varadkar at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh sort of breezily said, oh, we're going to continue to grow and that's how we're going to fund everything. But I mean, we, we, we've grown for a while, as Paul Krugman pointed out, through leprechaun economics. It's artificially inflated our GDP. It's made our borrowings look more sustainable. But the incentive to channel profits through Ireland is going to be 
dissipated, even if we didn't reduce our, even if we stuck at 12.5% by the fact that countries, the proposal, the global uh, proposal is that countries will be taxed where their activities are. So that makes it less attractive to channel money through Ireland, makes our GDP less inflated and makes our borrowings look less sustainable. So it we have very difficult Lisa times Chairman, One of the reasons that Pascal Donoghue was fighting this is that he has estimated in his department officials this could cost us about €2 billion Euro in tax revenues every year that we'll no longer get. If we're starting to lose money, how, where are we going to get the money from to invest in housing? Well, I mean, just to address a couple of points that Michael raised, we, we shut down sectors of our society so that we could actually protect people from COVID-19 and that we wouldn't lose lives. Like builders of one-off houses and actually, houses Again, you're, you're a great man for interrupting, Michael. But no, but it's the truth, Lisa. You you're talking is, nonsense. We shut I'm down like, builders. You say I'm talking nonsense, but you won't even let me speak. The point I was trying to make in a respectful debate where you let the other person speak is that if we had done uh, what Michael would have liked to have done, which is obviously open up a lot more, mm. um, we would have a higher death rate. That's just a fact of it. If you look at the death rate across the EU, that the average death rate, if we had gone to that level, 3,000 more people would have died in this country. If we hit the death rate in the UK, 4,000 more people would have died. Now, just to address the summary economic statement, actually, Michael McGrath, the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party, brought that up this evening. And there are some positives out of that, actually. We are expecting things to return to growth. And, and he actually mentioned the housing budget, along with Minister Dara O'Brien, that there will be a lot of money going into housing sufficiently to increase supply in the country and that they're well on track to deliver the housing for all policy that Dara O'Brien will publish in the next couple of days. So let's wait until see the document and give it a fair hearing and not just dismiss it because it comes from the government parties. And in, in terms of the corporation tax, Yes, the writing has been on the wall on that for, for quite some time. I wasn't aware until we came on the show tonight that that, that announcement had been made. Uh, you it's know, not I, an announcement, it's a report it, by it, Daniel McConnell based on sources from Cabinet. Well, Daniel McConnell is quite good at getting sources, so I, I trust Particularly that... Particularly from the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary from all, Party From meetings. all parliamentary parties, Matt, and uh, he's usually quite accurate, so he's doing his job as a journalist. But look, at, I mean, I, I know that the OECD are pushing that, I think 130 countries, or maybe slightly more than that, support a minimum rate of corporate tax. I think they're looking at about 15%, so 12.5% to 15%. It, it it is a significant jump, but I don't think we should panic. And, you know, the tax rate isn't the only reason that we get FDI. We have, you know, very educated workforce. We have lots of things to offer a company to, to locate here. We're part of the European Union. So I don't want people to get overly concerned that it will impact on the overall economic outlook of the country. Things are still looking bright and we will come through this. And in terms of the government's borrowings to deal with COVID, every country in the European Union has borrowed. We've done that to protect livelihoods to protect people through the worst that we've been through a global pandemic. And I've yet to hear any member of either house of the Iraq that say that that's a bad thing. I think it's a very good thing. And it was the, the right well, thing for the government to, to, to protect our people. First of all, stopping builders of one-off houses and country lanes during the winter from building houses made absolutely no sense and had absolutely no impact. And I know of several cases where Gardaí were called to a site reluctantly, but they enforced the law and had to stop builders of one-off. So now there's a bigger backlog and it costs more money. It's almost impossible to get a price now to build a house. That's the first point. The second point is a lot of our success is down to our demographics. How many million people meet each other every day in the underground in Dublin? None. You know, if we, ha if we compare like with like, we're not a particularly densely populated country. Obviously, the areas that were worst affected throughout Europe were densely populated. Sweden had no different death rate to London throughout. So, I mean, I don't accept the points about like this scaremongering about death and that uh, those who are uh, advocating for opening up the economy want to kill people. That's nonsense. OK, we have to leave it there. Our thanks to Michael McNamara for joining us. Lisa Chambers is staying with us because after the break, is it time to clamp down on social media giants and online abuse as the fallout from the social media vitriol faced by the English footballers continues.
Welcome back. Now, the online racial abuse of English football stars has once again opened up the conversation on regulating online comments and holding the social media giants to account. Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers is still with us. We're also joined by senior editorial analyst with Kinzen, Razan Ibrahim, and also via Skype by Dr. Kieran File, Associate Professor of Applied Linguistics at Warwick University, but also Managing Director of Reactive Sports Media. Kieran, you advise sports stars on how to deal with this type of abuse and you've advised GA players here. What's the first thing you tell them? Is it to engage or ignore or is it something else? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think uh, from my experience, we get a variety of responses from players dep depending on their personality, depending on uh, the way they see the issue at hand. But basically, we've built a toolkit that helps uh, athletes to consider the variety of options that they have uh, from the more direct in the more direct responses, which is to you know, have a go at the person, use the person's tweets, uh, the offensive tweets to raise awareness of the issue, uh, to rally support for them, all the way down to the more indirect options, which is just to leave it alone, uh, not do anything about it, uh, and maybe even delete the tweet. What sort of impact, though, can this type of activity have on the mental health of players or also their performances? Yeah, in my experience, this is the most distressing thing. Um, I, I've worked with a number of athletes who, I mean, to, to begin with, most of the, the work I did was more about things that athletes could control, like their impression, managing their relationships on social media, building an engaging brand. Uh, this is something that they cannot control. Uh, and so in that case, it's an incredibly distressing uh, aspect of social media. Uh, particularly when it is questioning and calling into question aspects of their personal identity, their faith, their gender, their sexual orientation, uh, and obviously, most recently, uh, their ethnicity and race. Do you ask them to maybe understand in some way the trolls who come after them, often anonymous, that they may be people with problems themselves? Yeah, that's one of the uh, one of the aspects of the the coping strategies that we try and build. Uh, the the two strategies that we try and help athletes understand are coping with the abusive messages that they that they do get, and more uh, the other side of this is strategies for managing the interaction with people who decide to have abusive messages, uh, abusive interactions with athletes. On that coping side, a big part of what we've been doing with athletes is helping them to realise that these trolls are not pillars of the community. They are not the norm. Uh, they are usually people with quite considerable issues themselves, personality disorders, uh, depression. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that can help athletes to understand who it is that they're essentially up against. It doesn't in any way uh, look to excuse the behaviour of these people. But it's more just about trying to help athletes understand who it is out there that is doing these things, because that can sometimes bring a little bit of comfort. Of course, in England, there are people who say that the trolls were encouraged by some of the pre-Euro 2020 comments about taking the knee by Boris Johnson and Priti Patel. But is there more you think that governments and the social media companies themselves should be doing rather than leaving it to the sports people and others to defend themselves? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think work is underway. I think, you know, for someone like myself who's uh, trying to help athletes build a toolkit to deal with these things, it's very hard to give them the tools to tackle societal issues like this. I mean, this 
is a societal issue. It needs a societal response. And, you know, who do we turn to in those situations to help us? It's governments, it's big organisations, it's charities. And there is work underway, but obviously still more to do. Kira File, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. Thank you. Well, we're joined now by Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers, who stayed with us, and Senior Editorial Analyst with Kinzen, Rizan Ibrahim. Can I start with you? Because if somebody was to have put up on social media footage of the England goal against Italy the other night without having prior approval to do so, it would have been immediately shut down. If that's possible, why can't the social media giants take down these sort of abusive and racist comments? Absolutely. Social media companies are responsible for the racism on their content, they have failed to tackle this huge problem. Uh, they don't have effective and uh, serious steps actually to tackle this huge problem. They need to scale up the early detection of racism on their platforms. They need also to be proactive instead of being reactive as what we have seen recently. Uh, they, they could be, uh, uh, for example, blocking uh, racist con content, uh, misinformation, or even harmful content on their platform before they are posted on their social media. So these are like really important issue. Another important uh, issue as well is verifying the accounts. Who are the people behind uh, this account? This Should is, anonymity be allowed online? Uh, that's really controversial question. Now, I believe that uh, people on social media, they should be dealing like normal life. They should have their names, their profile photos, on uh, their uh, uh, profiles and accounts, and their identity should be as well be verified. However, this comes with a huge price. Why? Because many people living in dictatorship or living in conservative societies or even authoritarian regimes, they use social media platforms to speak up, to express their opinion, to organize themselves, to have protests, for example. If they have their names and identity revealed, that would actually put them under threat and they should be persecuted or arrested. So there should a be a balance. Point, but the balance, but what about the problem that in democracies where you have deliberate actors who are coming forward to spread misinformation as well, and you have people, for all sorts of reasons, usually hiding behind the cloak of anonymity, who decide to try and make other people miserable. Absolutely, because actually politicians were, are part of the problem. We have seen Boris Johnson, Priti Pital, they are not taking a strong stand, for example, when the crowd booed the national uh, taking uh, team, the taking the knee. And the, another thing as well, Priti Pital herself described that players taking the knee as gesture politics. So this rhetoric directly and indirectly would encourage people to uh, uh, spread racism uh, online and even offline. So we need really be careful about that rhetoric in politics. Are the politicians doing enough in this country, Lisa? Because, you know, we have very strong rules in relation to what broadcasters can and can't do and what our newspapers can do. And uh, you have regulations in place and the laws of libel. Why is it that there hasn't been anything done here by our politicians to make these social media giants, who are publishers, responsible for what they allow to be put online? 
Yes, I mean, I think that the law in this area is certainly lagging behind. It has to catch up uh, and the advances in social media and how prevalent they are in our, in our daily lives and how much we rely on social media now for news. And we know that a lot of a lot of younger people don't buy the papers. They don't watch uh, TV as much. They're, they're on their phones. So it is important for us to, to, to make changes. There is a bill going through um, pre-legislative scrutiny um, on the Joint Oireachtas Committee that deals with media, uh, chaired by Deputy Neve Smith. So they're bringing through the online safety and media regulation bill. That will provide for a digital, an online safety regulation, um, a, a code of practice, a safety commissioner as well. So, you know, I mean, it, it hasn't hasn't been brought into operation just yet, so it remains to be seen how effective that will be. But it is an important step, and I think it's a recognition by the government that they need to legislate in this area to put, I suppose, a team in place to try and have a code of conduct and rules and regulations around social media that we should all adhere to. And um, hopefully it will, it will make a difference. But yet political parties also engage in social media themselves mm -hmm. as a way to try and reach out to potential voters. I mean, what has your own experience been? Could you go on social media after being on this programme tonight to engage in further debate with people? Or were you more likely to find that there will be offensive material has been posted based on your previous experiences? Yeah, it can be mixed. I mean, sometimes I, I think I've learned not to check Twitter after you, you do media stuff because very often people tend to pile on. They can be quite angry at that hour of the night. Um, and it, it, it's a small minority of voices, but they can be quite aggressive and it's an unfortunate side of media. But in saying that, you know, as a public representative, take, for example, Facebook, if I want to post video content or I want to post anything on my political page, there's now a new verification system. There's a tag attached to that to say that it's of political nature. Um, it's not posted immediately. Facebook actually go through content and they verify that it's suitable for posting. So they can do this if they want to. But then if I want to go on, say, TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, I can say what I want, post what I want, and it's not checked. So Absolutely. they can if they want yeah. to. Just to mention here that uh, social media companies are huge and they have a huge profit, millions of millions. They've been very creative in generating money, generating users and even their platforms. Now they should use this creativity uh, to find ways, effective ways of tackling this misinformation, racism, hate speech on their content. So it is uh, really essential to use what they have in tackling this problem. But do they care enough? As long as they're making the advertising revenue come in, are they going to care about standards and whatever unless they feel that they're going to be punished by governments for anything that goes wrong? Absolutely. So this is a point. Public pressure and there should be more legislation, uh, more... Uh, talks about that between governments themselves, collective effort, and as well, I believe as well, collective effort with the platforms themselves. So it, it should be a, a real pr pressure on the platforms to have serious steps, to have, uh, like, uh, uh, to scale up this uh, misinformation and, and, and stop this on their platforms. Has any country tried education, even going into sort of secondary school or even younger level, to try and get from an early age people learning how to engage in a respectful way with others so as not to engage in online bullying, for example? Uh, absolutely. I believe that uh, talking to younger generation is very important and that we should go to them instead of them coming to us. We should make uh, the process uh, easy and in a language that younger generation should understand awareness, talk to them, educate them, not only them, actually everyone. So this is a duty uh, from, from people to engage with that. Lisa Chambers, we talk a lot about mental health issues and we're better about talking about them, but do we talk enough about online bullying, which can affect people in public life, but also affects teenagers, students, whatever? 
yeah, and it's far, it's far more serious for our younger people. And, you know, thank God we didn't grow up at a time when there was all of these social media platforms. I can't imagine growing up and going through your teenage years with everything documented and video evidence and, you know, things. And, and you know, back in the day, if I can say that, if you were, were being bullied at school, at least when you went home, you got some rest and, and a break. But now it follows you into your bedroom. So it is a problem. I think schools are doing quite a good job actually talking to their students. Parents are a lot more educated about the dangers of online. But now it's time for government to actually step up with legislation, enforcement of the legislation, that there be sanctions for social media companies. They are moving. Uh, they're moving slowly. They're being dragged in a particular direction. They know that they know it's coming, um, but they do need to be gently encouraged and pushed with those sanctions to uh, to do to, to direct a lot of that money that they make into making it a safer space. Okay, thank you very much to Lisa Chambers and Razan Ibrahim for joining us. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon and back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. Don't forget that our programme is available also as a podcast. The next news here on Virgin Media One is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. So thanks for watching, stay safe, have a very good night. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.